crypto has a history that began long before Bitcoin. And the best way to understand where crypto is going is to understand the foundation upon which it was built. Welcome to Just Crypto. My name is Vanessa, and I am immensely excited today to welcome Gene to the show. He's the former head of business development at PGP, the current CEO of Chia Network, and one of the people who helped ensure that code is recognized as free speech. Uh, Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And we have a lot of people following along with us. So if you are following, uh, drop a heart. We will take questions for Gene through the show as well. So this is very much interactive. I will try to get a few folks uh, here as well. Uh, Kenny Boy, uh, welcome. Thank you for becoming a member as well. If you want to support the show, uh, it would be great. Uh, you know, you can click the join button there, um, subscribe and share. Uh, Stubbs, welcome. Great to have you here. Milosh, we've got Javier, who's been waiting since uh, a couple hours ago already. Uh, Andrew's here as well. Vitz here. We've got Naz who's joining, uh, Vladimir's here, gosh, uh, Tank Talk Wireless is here, Jono. Uh, we have a whole bunch of people, uh, Chia Blockchain, Canal, Hexographer, Monkey Zoo, uh, Dracadis, uh, Lucky Tokenate. Um, you've, yeah, you've got a huge fan base, it seems, Gene. Uh, Kevin's here as well, uh, Monkey Zoo. And I'm going to stop there because there's just so many folks. So, uh, you know, one, thank you for everyone for popping in and for supporting Chi and for supporting uh, Gene. Um, so one thing we uh, like to do is just to let folks get to know you a little bit better, Gene. You've got a fairly storied history uh, in crypto. So if you could share some of that with us. Sure. Well, uh, so it kind of all started when I invented Internet ad blocking with a couple of buddies in college. Uh, and we've done that to, you know, get uh, well known, but we started to really think about what we wanted to do from a software development perspective. And it was to put PGP into Netscape email. And this is like Netscape 1.2 to give people a sense of when I'm talking about. Yeah. And some and, people may not even know what PGP is. So. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll go there in just a sec. So PGP was the first really strong crypto product that was usable by humans mostly. It was still kind of hard. And in fact, that was one of the things we were trying to do is to make it really easy in Netscape mail to be able to encrypt your email. Uh, and Phil Zimmerman was uh, very historically prosecuted, but not actually ever indicted for exporting PGP, which was considered the same as exporting nuclear weapon at the time. Uh, and they finally decided to give up on prosecuting him. And shortly thereafter, he, co he founded PGP Inc. effectively. The first thing they did was buy back uh, their commercial rights from a company they'd licensed it to. And the second thing he did was buy us when we flew out to license PGP. So I came aboard uh, in 1996. Yeah, wow, a long time ago. Uh, ended up temporarily running the engineering, get PGP 5.5 out. And so like Hal Finney worked for me for a while. And, you know, a lot of these guys are friends and personal friends. And like Brams Cohen of BitTorrent, who obviously found her here, his roommate was one of the PGP uh, kind of community developers and later became a PGP staffer after I left. But while there, we were coming up with, okay, you know, we still have this problem about export control law. And so myself and the head of business development and an outside counsel who I still uh, hang around with and was speaking to the co-founder of my other company yesterday as well, we came up with, well, let's publish the actual source code in a book. Let's put that book in the Library of Congress. We'll put it at Printers, Inc. in Palo Alto and Mountain View. And somebody can just order it from overseas and it'll go. But we need to get going and it wasn't happening. So I took a copy of the book to the Cypherpunks meeting and handed it to Lucky Green. And it was already pre-filled out to go to Switzerland with all the details and said, hey, Lucky, it'd be horrible if you dropped this at FedEx for me. Would you mind? <laughs> so he did that. Uh, Department of Commerce investigated me. Uh, Bob Cohn was my boss at the time. Uh, and he 
nicely didn't tell me all the details, but you know, I was the like most senior executive with the least to lose. My uh, current wife was not yet my girlfriend back then. And so there was about a two month period where department of commerce was thinking about whether I'd be the second person ever in, in, you know, indicted for exporting crypto. And uh, Bob came to meet with them uh, and brought another copy of the source code. And basically they're like, well, we've reviewed this and you're absolutely right. It's a book. Uh, have a nice day. You can tell Mr. Hoffman <laughs> about it. And only a couple months later, they issued this little $5 form that you fill out now to like officially export your open source. So uh, I've got a picture here from, from your blog that you sent me of uh, the book. And um, yeah, this is a part of history. I think everyone who's been in crypto has eventually heard of uh, this particular story. I am kind of curious how you got the courage to do that because that's a pretty bold step. It is and it isn't. And the reason I say it's not is because it's so clearly First Amendment protected activity. It's not funny. You know, staring at a federal judge and going, Your Honor, I'm in jail for a book. <laughs> I felt pretty confident about that. Now, you know, the whole like going to jail for a little while and looking like SBF. Yeah, that was not exactly exciting. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was right and it was important. We would not be where we are today if it had not been that we ended that then. And, you know, we've even had, sadly, bad after effects. You know, some of the post-heartbleed vulnerabilities were the fact that web browsers used to have to support weak crypto. And so people found ways to trick browsers into doing weak crypto. You know, it, it's, it's really expensive in a way people kind of don't understand to have that kind of horribly bad policy. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a, a question already here from Mr. Mastermind who's asking, uh, do you think uh, Len Sassaman was maybe Satoshi? So what I can say is that uh, Bram and I believe Satoshi was more than one person. And we do believe they are friends of ours who are deceased mostly. And Lynn is certainly on the list of suspects. <laughs> do, you, do you have a prime suspect? So I think Lynn and Hal work together with one other person who I don't really care to name because they're not dead. Um, and, you know, there's an important little MO here. Um, the official story was that Phil was the first person to export PGP. Mm. When Hal died of ALS, Phil finally released all the PGP folks from a secret we were all having to keep, which was Hal was who originally exported PGP. Oh. And so it fits Hal's MO to be very clearly not available at times when, when Satoshi was talking because it wasn't Satoshi. Hal wasn't the voice of Satoshi. I'll say it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you go from kind of being deep in crypto as it was originally to crypto as we come to know it today with the blockchain? So in 1997, Ian Goldberg came up with a really radical new idea that worked on top of Chamian Digital Cash. This is the you know, central bank and, you know, you kind of rush to the bank and if you're first there, you win. Um, Ian figured out a way to make all of the transactions actually anonymous to the bank too. And mm -hmm. so that was a paper he delivered in, you know, spring 97. And with that, it really hit me that, you know, the digital cryptocurrency was the next major step. But, you know, I, I tell this joke a lot. My the, now, now wife, then girlfriend at that point was like strange Caribbean island surrounded by armed guards. Can we go back to the United States? Probably not. You should do that music thing. And that became a music <laughs> <laughs> I've got to admit, I'm, I'm fangirling a little bit here. I, uh, my final project in college, um, early 2000s, was anonymous digital cash. And a lot of the folks you're talking about were in like the books that I was studying at the time. So I feel very honored that you're here, Gene. Yeah, it's really funny. Like Chris Allen, who did DID, and you know, all these people, these were all people we all hung out together. In fact, it was weird. Bram and I didn't meet, meet each other in the late 90s. We actually met in the 10s because we ended up in the same venture portfolio. But we had like nine friends in common. So, of course, we were immediately thick as thieves. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so were you, uh, were you early in, in Bitcoin as well? 
Yes and no. I mean, I knew it was happening. Um, I was probably like six months behind. I took too much sweet time, you know, buying some in just because I was busy running another startup. But when uh, Cyprus was literally going to decimate the Russians, I doubled my money that week and kept it riding for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. Now, now, how did you find just your way to to Chia? And we'll get into a little bit more of what Chia is as well. But uh, I mean, it's uh, I guess one thing from uh, building kind of cryptographic tools, and another thing to actually you know have a whole blockchain. Yeah. So uh, you know. Co-founded eMusic.com, helped launch the iPod. Uh, Tony Fidel actually had worked for eMusic for a few weeks before he went back to Philips and, and Apple recruited him. Um, and Tony jokingly calls me the grandfather of the iPod. Uh, and and then, we have a weird crossover history here because I learned, launched the first version of Zoom uh, back ah, when I was yeah. at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Yes. You, you, uh, you, I don't know if you ever saw Bill Gates asking the guys why they didn't buy eMusic because they did make an offer. It was really quite funny. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, then I sold uh, eMusic to Universal Music and helped create the iTunes Music Store. You know, I was now a Universal exec and we'd obviously had a long relationship with Apple you know, through the years of the iPod. But uh, when Vivendi kind of blew up, uh, changes were made, I ended up starting what became a subscription infrastructure company. And so got very deep into how the payment rails in the world work. And so, you know, you put all that together and I'd always wanted to make sure that anonymous digital cash, digital cash, both became widely deployed. And so I sold uh, my previous company to Amdocs in 17, 16, 16, um, and looked around and went, okay, clearly it's time to go back. But there are problems. You know, the problems are Satoshi being a bunch of software guys didn't kind of think through the hardware problem of proof of work ultimately and completely easy mistake to make as a software guy, uh, being one myself as well. Uh, and, you know, Ethereum is on to a great idea, but is a poor implementation of that idea. Uh, you know, I, I've heard one of our community members make a very good joke earlier today. It was uh, Bitcoin's money, Ethereum's programmable, and Chia is programmable money. Unpack that a little bit for us. So Bitcoin is almost exactly right, you know, but for proof of work and Bitcoin script not having enough functionality, aka not smart contracts, all the rest of the design decisions are superb. And so, you know, when we went to go solve the proof of work energy problem, the real thing is, you know, that's table stakes. That's, hey, you've got security and it can scale and it can be an enduring thing. What's interesting is smart contract programming. I mean, that's where the real unlock is. And so taking all of the good Bitcoin ideas and having Bram do his super genius thing Bram does, which is like made Bitcoin a little simpler and therefore made it able to do a hell of a lot more smart contracting. So there's nothing you can do in Ethereum that you can't do on Chia. And in fact, there's some things you can do on Chia that are really hard to do on Ethereum, like custody and like direct peer-to-peer -peer trading. So, you know, we saw that there was a real opportunity. And in fact, that like real world users who should be using blockchains hadn't for these two reasons. You know, when you talk to top five U.S. bank CIOs, they're like, yeah, you know, we could not be seen using that much power. And of course, we don't have smart contracts and Solidity, you know, we'll run Solidity on a private blockchain because we can keep the North Koreans off of it. Yeah, now I'm, I'm a little surprised that you, you you kind of started with smart contracts, given your history. I would have maybe expected you to start with the privacy of, of Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on that and the current privacy coins that are out there? So I love the privacy coins. And I will just say that I think the way I think about it is that you want to stage things in the right direction. And if you have really powerful smart contracting capabilities and you have things like access to ZK primitives, there are really good privacy protecting ways to run effectively L2s on an L1 because, you know, the privacy of settling $50 million, no one cares. 
But what were those $50 million transactions and who happened? We want those ultimately to be very private and only you know the domain of the, the sender and the receiver. And if you build the technological infrastructure right, you can easily add all of those interesting privacy elements. Plus, some of the coolest privacy crypto right now, it's still just a little too unperformant. Like it's like, you know, you need to have a GPU farm to really get that snark to, to be created fast enough. That's simply a matter of time. And so, you know, one of the things Bram and I watch is what that state of the art looks like, because as those things start to become much more, you know, able to be decentralized, more people can run them on their normal hardware, then they become really, really powerful. So you're you're a proponent of privacy at the L2 level, not the L1 level. Yeah, I mean, the thing about an L1 level is you're trying to come to consensus about the truth. And so auditability mm -hmm. really matters. But once you have the ability to have, you know, some sort of more uh, zero knowledge or, you know, uh, trusted computing statement about, you know, an aggregate that makes so much more sense. Plus also any realistic view about the L1 is the L1 is still always going to be held back by the trilemma. Um, you know, trilemma is you can have high TPS, uh, security or decentralization, choose two. Um, I actually think it's a dilemma. I think you can either have high TPS or security because I think decentralization is security. Uh, and so ultimately, you know, I think on that one, your minimum transaction value is going to be like a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, because you're going to be paying mm -hmm. 10 bucks to get in. But what's going to happen is, you know, instead of buying coffee on L1, you buy it on an L2 in a ZK roll-up anonymous way, and Starbucks settles $50 million worth of coffee on L1 for $10. That's very similar to almost our existing uh, networks, right, where large amounts are settled um, and uh, smaller amounts kind of are private between, I guess, you and the bank. Yeah, I mean, people don't think of it, but debit cards and credit cards are an L2 on Swift and Fedwire. Um, you know, yeah. overnight, basically, all of that gets settled out in that settlement. And that's the way you scale these things up. You know, one of the things I worry about with a lot of technologists is they throw out the good things in history for the new mm -hmm. thing. And it's like, mm, you know, that architecture actually works pretty well. We could just do it a hell of a lot better with a lot less trust. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think we're all, uh, if you're a technologist, you like building new things, right? As you said, mm -hmm. um, not debugging old stuff. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't pop South Padres Tony's comment here. And he's in the Monero community. And I, I would love to ask your perspective uh, on Monero as it relates to what we just talked about, but also just Monero in general as a technology for privacy and freedom. Love it. It's solid. It's one of the few projects I think is completely legitimate. You know, you know uh, Zcash as well in that category, you know, it, one of the problems in this space is a lot of projects that are just crap. Um, you've got people in over their heads, you know, saying they get no technology. You know, the thing I love about, you know, Monero, Zcash, others is that is real technology. It is a real movement and I'm supportive as hell. It's just, you know, at longer term, I think you can get to things like a privacy protecting U.S. central bank digital currency, which is not at all what we're currently talking about. But I think that's going to ultimately settle on a public blockchain that's really auditable. Okay, you opened a whole nother door now, and I promise we'll get to Chia as well. But you talked about CBDCs. Um, give me your thoughts on CBDCs. Can they be created in a way that preserves the freedoms we know as American citizens, um, or is it just a non-starter? Um, yes, they can, and no, no one's actually there yet. Um, so, you know, the issue is, is that there's one thing that's true for both like treasury departments and central bankers worldwide, which is that for the first time, money is going to have to compete on usability. You know, if your money isn't better than USDC or Tether or a stable coin that's linked to a over collateralized asset, people won't use it. 
And so, you know, this whole idea that the draconian CBDCs would ever get traction is just laughable to me. I mean, you know, in reality, smart non-Americans realize that Tether is safer because they've done a better job hiding their banks than USDC mm -hmm. has. And, you know, we've seen that, right? USDC depegged and USDT didn't. Um, so I do think, however, that with ZK technologies in layer twos, that you can have a future, say, US dollar that is originally issued by the banks like it already is and you know you go to like your bank of america account and you would pull money out to a stable coin on an l2 that is you know not anonymous as you pull it out of the atm but as you transact the bank can't see it the, fed, the feds can't see it nobody can see it until you want to bring that back to a checking balance right you know what make it back to uh database money do you see that as a, a direction that ultimately will will head in, or do you worry more about the dystopian future that a lot of people are talking about with CBCDs? So I do worry about the dystopian future, but it can't happen here. And the reason I say that is oh. that there is enough political will on both sides of the aisle. Because the other thing is, as much as like, well, I can badmouth her, the Warren crowd, right? <laughs> you know, it's more than just her; it's all the people she's yeah. put in the administration. You know, they're crazy about it and love it because it's ultimate control. It is kind of tyrannical control, and hell no. But there's other major parts of the Democratic Party that see this as the FBI versus Apple issue, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, software developers have First Amendment rights to design their software the way they want to design it. It's always going to be better than a gimped currency issued by the Treasury. And so the question gets to be, you know, do we just have USDC become the actual replacement for when you're not in the database or not? And, you know, that's a call, but I don't know that it matters. And I think that the way you get there is like, USDC and USDT today, they can freeze you whenever they feel like it. And that is scary as hell. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have a perspective on a lot of the decentralized uh, stable coins? I mean, obviously, UST exploded, but we have, you know, Frax USD, we have DAI, uh, other ones. So anything that is um, below par is a joke. And, you know, I've mm -hmm. heard people come to me and talk to me about these schemes. And I'm like, do you know who George Soros is? And they look at me like, huh? I'm like, okay, if you don't know who George Soros is, you are not ready to design a stable coin. Um, for those who don't know, Soros broke the British pounds peg. So, you know, when a government that was the you know empire before us and hadn't fully declined could be beaten by Wall Street, you're not going to win that battle. But, you know, I do see that like DAI has been battle tested, that there's about to be CircuitDAO on Chia, which is similarly over collateralized. You know, as tax avoidance vehicles, as, you know, other utilities, those are quite useful, actually. And I think they can be made pretty safe. You know, none of the stuff is safe. Even USDC is not safe. Yeah, um, as we discovered, right? Well, I mean, look, nor is USD. I mean, you know, I, I, I joke, never bank where I bank. So our bank, my personal bank was First Republic. My business's bank was Silicon Valley Bank. And my investment bank was Credit Suisse. Now, because I've been through this before in 2008, we had balances not at SVB and we had crypto. And so it, it was at worst, even if we lost all the money at SVB, an annoyance about the current running payroll it would be like, yeah. hey, kids, it might be two days late. Sorry. Right. Um, but, you know, I'm supposed to respect a fractional reserve system that's only got 10% of the fraction. And oh, by the way, is insolvent <laughs> if you market the market? USD is a little, a little squeaky there. Yeah, I mean, in, in some sense, the decentralized coins are actually a little more secure because, you know, they're backed by 160% plus. Uh, well, and you can see it. I mean, you, know, you can go out there and audit and go, ooh, the backing's getting low. I might want to get out now. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, let's jump to the blockchain uh, trilemma. So you, you kind of mentioned it's a dilemma, but I'm curious on your thoughts about uh, what ways people have tried to tackle that trilemma. And I don't know how familiar you are with Solana and some of their approaches and where you think it nets out at the end of it. So is Solana up? Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, Today, yes. Uh, ask me last week. Who knows? Exactly. Uh, it's really great when you do 10,000 TPS to zero. Um, so look, the trilemma is real, and it's not just uh, the academic trilemma. The, the the reality trilemma is real. If you go above about 250 TPS, the average American's fixed internet connection cannot keep up with one peer. If they want to talk to two peers, it's half that. <laughs> and that's before you want to run a Zoom or have a Netflix download. So, you know, even when you start talking about people with symmetric gigabit fiber, like I'm currently talking to you on, you know, okay, I can have four peers at 250 TPS. This is not how you have decentralization. And in fact, what's going on is a lot of people who are telling you we've solved the trilemma are telling you we have solved that we're going to put our blockchain in AWS and Azure. And those are the only places you're going to be able to run it. And it's going to be expensive. You know, it may cost you a few hundred to a few thousand dollars a month before all the staking costs. So, you know, people who claim to have solved the trilemma have basically said, we're going to show you a veneer of a blockchain, but you're going to rely on exactly the same data center as you do for Web2. And I guess that's why Solana has a deal with Google Cloud to yes. post a lot of their data. It's extremely expensive, and I'm sure Google is making a lot of money on Solano. Instead, we have like 100,000 people running things like Raspberry Pi 4s and 16-year-old laptops and doing a 40 TPS blockchain without breaking the sweat. Now that sounds, uh, you know, very similar. I have a lot of folks from Cardano on the show as well. Um, very similar to what a lot of people there are telling me. How do you think of Cardano and its setup? So I think Cardano was a, you know, an honest attempt at something interesting, but I think proof of stake is a flawed technology that proof of work was created to fix. And so mm -hmm. a lot of this is in many ways regression, not kind of forward progress. And so that was one of the big things that, you know, Bram and I saw when we were thinking about Gia was that, you know, proof of work finally solved all these things that like you hear Vitalik still complain about day to day today. You know, he, Vitalik actually admitted that it is actually proof of Vitalik. So about two years ago at Stanford Blockchain, he said he's talking about adding messaging into the Ethereum client so they can tell you which chain is the real chain when there's a contention. What else is wrong with proof of stake? Uh, a couple things. I mean, obviously, rich get richer, which is no fun. You know, the, the issue, too, is, is almost no proof of stake is secure above 34%. So it's not 51%, it's 34 The bigger thing, though, is, is I think that a lot of technologists don't realize that Wall Street banks can borrow a trillion dollars short term overnight. I was talking to one of those kinds of people one day, and I'm like, you guys can borrow a trillion dollars overnight, right? And they're like, no, no. Well, we could call Frank. Yeah, yeah, okay, we can. <laughs> Right. And, and so when you can do that, you know, things like long range attacks that seem to be, you know, unlikely become actually quite valuable once you start putting a whole bunch of actual real assets that it might be interesting to be able to like unwind an NVIDIA trade from a few months ago and sell it again today. I mean, do you think that's actually a possibility on proof of stake networks? Yes. Uh, you know, given that there's other ways to, you know, fork the chain and um, kind of remove attacks like that. Uh, the, okay, so let's say that BlackRock makes a billion-dollar successful trade, and then Vitalik says no. Hmm. That's the reality. And I don't pe think people think through that reality very much. Now, it's going to be interesting what a federal judge says, but is code law there? 
you know, they did something that fit all of the rules. Like a good long range attack isn't like, you know, exploitative. It's literally just replaying a new history that's better for you. Yeah. And Ethereum has uh, their own checkered past with, you know, code isn't really law, at least we that's say right. it is. That's um, right. So, so, you know, when it was um, casino assets, but when it's California pension fund money, it's going to be a different outcome. Uh, Vit, thank you so much for this for the super chat. I really appreciate you. Um, let's talk about Chia. So, what is Chia? A lot of folks on uh, here might know about it, but a lot of other people have never heard of it. I know myself; I hadn't really heard of it until just recently. Uh, what is it? Why is it special? So, Chia is an almost three-year-old new blockchain that did two things very, very differently. Maybe three. Uh, first of all, we went out to improve proof of work. So instead of trying to improve proof of stake, it was what can we do to make it so that you aren't sitting there grinding away doing SHA hashing all day long? And the simple way to think about proof of space and time, which is what our mechanism is, is it's proof of proof of work. So the way it works is you take some unused hard drive space and you do some work, you fill it with hashes. And once you're done, now you just kind of sit and listen to the network. And every so often, a proof of time is announced. Just think of it like a bingo announcer announcing a number. And as long as you have a proof of space that's close enough, you won and you get to make that block. You get the fees and you get a farming reward. And so it means that the network, it, the same sorts of security levels, Bitcoin is 500 times more efficient annually in power. And it uses all sorts of used hard drives. Like the number one source these days for effectively efficient drives is to buy data center takeouts that are like four years old because they've depreciated quite a bit, but they're going to run on for four to eight years. And if you lose one, you didn't lose anything valuable. You just lost that space and you need to you know, replot some space. But the more important thing was building smart contracts in the Bitcoin style. So using the coin model, which is a simplified UTXO model, and using a functional language we call Chia Lisp to really build something that you could bet trillions of other people's money on. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really important because we think that's where the magic happens. You know, one of the things we have, and I'll tell you, it's the, we're the only blockchain who can do it with the asterisks. Sooner or later, Bitcoin might make enough changes to catch up. Uh, and that is, you can post an offer to trade two assets in the Chia blockchain. And that post can be emailed to somebody. It can be a QR code on a carrier pigeon. What it is, is a partially signed transaction. So it's like a PBST in Bitcoin for those of you who know it. But I could say, hey, I'll, I'll give you 33 USDC for one XCH. And I can publish that anywhere. I can put it on the web. I can put a QR code in a SEC filing, which I've done. Uh, and anybody who sees it can inspect it. They can see, is it still valid? Has it timed out? Has the coin already been spent? Nope. I'll take the other side. They spend in that one XCH, spend out the 33 USDC to their wallet, sign that, say so everything aggregates, and they put that through on the blockchain, and it goes through. And you'll notice, like, no counterparty risk, no escrow. When you're posting liquidity in markets, it's still in your custody until somebody actually takes and uses the liquidity. So you have this kind of, like, one market concept where all of a sudden any asset is exchanged with any other asset, and it's composable. You know, if you're wanting Tether, but somebody else has USDC, the internal exchange can actually like aggregate in and trade out in the same transaction, the tether for the USDC. So you ultimately get what you want, even though it's even more complicated kind of mashup. It's a really powerful set of tools. And it lets like, and this is an actual example that's coming soon. It'll let the government of Singapore propose to the government of Bhutan that if they make this change in their voluntary carbon registry, Singapore will make that change. And here's a million dollars of stable coin. Uh, 
and they email it. And now Bhutan inspects that cryptographically and knows for sure that, yeah, that ma that matches what we agreed and settles it. And like now you've settled the entire transaction on chain. You know, being able to trade peer to peer between governments in a way they can't screw each other hasn't existed before. How is this different from atomic swaps? It is an atomic swap, except it's extremely uh, programmable. So, you know, when you've dealt with atomic swaps in the past, they've generally been like, hey, I can get a Ethereum coin for a you know, Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Here it can be, I'll take anything within 3% of this Oracle or the median of these three Oracles. You know, the, the, the programmability is really, really rich there. And you can do other things like have the offer have an automatic clawback after the offer is over that would basically be an ability for you to refund. But the other side knows that and so they don't consider the deal done until that time period is expired. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine basically full smart contracting capability in an atomic swap. Yeah, that's that's pretty fascinating. And, and you mentioned kind of oracles. And I'm just thinking, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, Ethereum, that's one of the biggest risks. So you've got this uh, atomic swap, pro programmable atomic swap capability built into Chia. How do you mitigate oracle risk? So we actually want people to run more than one oracle and actually in the offer, uh, do things like take the median and throw the most extreme one out. And so all of a sudden, the ability for someone to monkey with the Oracle and screw, screw transactions in this block goes down considerably. Yeah. Also, um, there are a lot of design decisions that Ethereum made to make it really easy for developers, which makes it really hard to secure. And so one of the big differences in Chia, in a block, all transactions go through in parallel. So you can't do a lot of like front run the Oracle, move the Oracle, and screw the next transaction in line. All the oracles are going to settle at the same time, and everybody's going to agree on interlocking announcements about, hey, I'm not settling unless that oracle is within this range, right? Now let's bounce back to the consensus because I'm still trying to digest what you talked about around proof of space and, and proof of time and how that actually gets the same security for uh, more efficiency. Um, so if you could kind of break down, like how is it as secure as Bitcoin, but without as much work? Well, there's a couple different ways it's as secure. Um, our Nakamoto coefficient had gotten as high as 120. It's down to 20 due to some interesting technical developments, but I expect it to start recovering uh, shortly. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's in C is two. I mean, this is a scary concept. Two pools can make all the transactions for a while until the miners wake up. Now, the pushback from Bitcoin folks would be, well, that's two mining pools. The hash rate will just move if it's under attack. Great. Four hours after the attack, some things will be mitigated. <laughs> so you don't view that as actually a mitigation from a scary Well, I mean, it means it'll recover. I mean, I, I, I'm perfectly willing to accept that. But like, why get there in the first place? Yeah, right, right now, you would have a very, very, very hard time, even as the United States Army gathering up enough people to get the next block in Chia. U.S. Army can do a four-hour attack on two entities around the world. They do it all the time. And, you know, that, and unless you're thinking like that, you're not thinking about what blockchains are going to be in the future. Um, proof of space and time. If we didn't have proof of time, it would have similar security dynamics to proof of space. Pardon me, proof of stake. And that's because, well, I hate the term because nothing at stake isn't is is like propaganda for stake, but it's wrong. The issue is like if you don't have to like very you know clearly spin something right now, you can kind of like walk out in the future of blockchains with your winning whatever and figure out like which win should actually bring it back around to you faster. And this is a type of grinding attack. But proof of time means you can't figure out how to do that. Because you've got, in proof of time, a narrow window. It's about 30, 40 seconds to decide whether or not you're going to publish your win or not. 
And once you pass that window, your wind's invalid. And so it's very hard to do these kind of steering attacks. And that brings us up to basically 51% attack threshold. Now, there are ways to get us back down about 43, but they're really, really hard. But you should know, we have about 32 exabytes of storage. That's around 37 exabytes, if I'm doing that in the back of my brain, right? Um, there's only 15 exabytes of storage for sale each month that isn't already bought by all of the data centers. So, you know, to effectively attack the Geo blockchain, you'd have to buy all storage in the world for at least two and a half to three months. And the last time something like that happened, the storage business uh, had their most profitable quarter ever, and we doubled the price of storage. You know, an attacker, there's no better attack. I mean, when asked by three-letter agencies, how would you attack Chia if you were a nation state today, it would be build the world's largest SSD factory. And you couldn't just go up to uh, Amazon and say, you know, give me a couple S3 buckets and, and do the attack. They don't have I, that available. I, I don't think Amazon owns 30 exabytes. I think they probably own about own like five to 10 exabytes. I mean, you know, these are, these are numbers that are just mind boggling in their total size. But more importantly, you've got to convince Amazon to delete other people who are paying them storage. That's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. You know, you're competing economically for other real uses of the same thing. Unlike in Bitcoin, where there's no other economic use of a SHA-256 miner, you can attack another chain. That's about it. But, you know, if there's a, you know, if you don't want to use your storage for Chia, there's another demand for it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it, it sounds like it's uh, more dependent on space as and less so on hash rate for its security. Yeah, it is. It's space. It's basically saying, you know, look, it, it, well, and it does work difficulty resets just like Bitcoin does. So, yeah. you know, as more space comes on every 24 hours, it goes was 24 hours, 24 hours. And if it was too short, mm -hmm. difficulty goes up. If it's too long, difficulty comes down. Right. And so by having a couple hundred thousand farmers still around the world, because not all of them run nodes and some of them are in pools that don't work in our decentralized manner. Uh, you really have no ability to guess what the next block is going to be like when you look at our nakamoto coefficient i was telling you about 20. the 21st farmer the beta on how many different farmers are the 21st signer is like ten thousand. so you know it, it, it falls off from big farms but the thing is is like you now really do have so many individuals validating it's not funny and longer term we expect this to kind of get even less professional and what i mean by that is you know, almost everybody has overallocated storage. We've been in a little weird window where SSDs are priced better than hard drives. So they come in your computers today, but they don't do what they used to do, which is you always kind of had twice as much space that you need. Well, we're about to get back to that. And when you do that, you start saying, okay, everybody can have a Chia farm running in the background. It doesn't really, you won't notice it, but you know, you've been making a few pennies a day and that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And maybe you give those to charity, but the point being like, you're competing with people who have stranded storage. You're not going out and buying storage. And when you do that, you know, there's a lot of stranded storage in the world. Yeah. And I guess it's a different characteristic than CPU, which is always getting, uh, I mean, storage gets, gets larger, but it doesn't necessarily consume electricity just to have storage. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody comes up with a breakthrough archival storage mechanism that works great for Chia, Facebook and Google and Microsoft would be extremely excited to use it in their data centers too. You know, it, it is one of those things where it's designed so that we're on the storage path, if you will. And, you know, that makes it very interesting because, again, if we end up making storage cheaper, okay. But is there a, an attack where you could effectively build like a, a zip tool to give you additional storage based on some characteristic of how Chia works? 
so the, the the answer to that is there's always that, but not really. And so let me explain mm -hmm. what the hell I mean by that. Um, so one of the fundamental pieces of science here is, uh, and Hellman originally came up with this of Diffie-Hellman, that there's always a trade-off for space versus time. So, you know, if you have a rainbow table and you write out a bunch of disks, you use less CPU time to look something up. Um, what Bram came up with is a method to make that exponentially grow harder as you try to use less space. So, you know, there have been novel ways to, <clears throat> people call it compression, but really it's actually uh, incomplete plotting and then doing compute later to complete the plotting, right? Um, you know, we've always kind of designed it knowing that was the case. And in fact, we make it so that the minimum plot size can go up over time. So today, the minimum plot size in its na native sense is like 102 gig. But, mm -hmm. you know, people have gotten that down to 50 gig and in some cases down to 30 gig, but you don't need a bunch of, bunch of CPU to do that. Now, it turns out up to about half is still actually more efficient because GPU plotting is cheaper. You're not doing all the plotting work up front. You're delaying when you know that to when you win. Um, so it actually got a little more efficient. Now it's coming back towards the, uh, the same efficiency we were at before with, uh, you know, the even more advanced GPU methods. But there's some knobs we can tweak to make it kind of push that exponential ramp back closer to storage and further from compute. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Monkey Zoo, thank you so much for uh, the super chat. I really appreciate you. I'm uh, really enjoying this chat as well. It's super interesting. We've got a question from Milos here who's asking, are there pictures of the Time Lord time machine? Uh, one, what is the Time Lord time machine and how does it factor into the system and where can we get pictures? Uh, there are pictures floating around. Uh, hang on. <laughs> so uh, let me back up and tell people who don't know about these what, the, what this is. So proof of time is um, a VDF, a verifiable delay function. Um, and the idea is that you come up with a piece of math that you can only do in one direction. So the naive way to think about it is a hash of a hash of a hash of a hash. And you say, okay, I need somebody to go do these hashes for this amount of time. And so, you know, if it takes you one second per hash, obviously it's not right, you know, and you want 60 seconds to ha pass, you go, I want 60 iterations of that. Now, you know, if you do the hash of a hash of a hash of a hash, the only way to check it as the third party looking at it, did that actually occur? is to do the hash of the hash of the hash and take 60 seconds. The thing about proof of time is you can do one of these one-way functions in one direction, but at the end, you create a proof that of mm -hmm. the like millions of iterations that were in the last five minutes, that proof takes like a third of a second to validate. And so time lords on the Chia blockchain, you need one honest time lord on the Chia blockchain. In the past, those had been like three Rocket Lake machines running, because it turns out there's three Chia blockchains Anyway, um, <laughs> so you need three time, time chains. Um, so those had been just kind of mildly overclocked, you know, gaming PCs. Uh, but we set out to make sure that no one could have a faster time lord. Because uh, when I said you could get us down to 43%, if you have like 100 time lords and they're all the fastest, you can get us down to 43% space. So instead of needing like 36 exabytes to attack, you'd need like 32, right? Mm -hmm. um, still pretty safe. Uh, but uh, we went out with Supernational and created a Time Lord ASIC. Uh, and that Time Lord ASIC is four times faster than the fastest Intel. And Intel was the fastest at this in the fir first place. Uh, and we're uh, just about to distribute them through to uh, all, a bunch of people around, our, around the world in our network. Um, to run the fastest, you run three of these. Nice. <laughs> so they're like, like smaller than a Raspberry Pi, kind of a deck of cards. Um, they have Two USBs on the back, USB-C, one's for power, one's for data. And you, know, you just kind of plug them in. Whoop. 
Oops, sorry, I'm trying to make you big. <laughs> there we go, so people can see. Yep. And so you plug three of these into three gaming PCs, and you have one of the fastest Time Lords in the world. Now, does that fall into the same thing that uh, Bitcoin ASIC miners do in that there will be faster and faster time lords that people create um, in order to... Well, actually, do you even get anything for running a faster time lord? Does it... you, get, you get nothing. So as long as there are a few fast time lords out there, speeding up from here is theoretically very hard. So it costs about $10 million to get to just about 1,000 iterations per second. That's how fast these are. Um, it costs about $40 million to probably get to 1,100 TPS. So you can see what the kind of falling number is. And this is very intentional. With Bitcoin mining, it's very parallelizable. You know, buy another Bitcoin miner, go faster, right? With proof of storage, very parallelizable. Buy another hard drive, win that much more space. Proof of time is not parallelizable at all. For any given winning block, the proof of time built on it is always going to be exactly the same output. And it's only how quickly you get there. And so intentionally, we designed it so that you had no parallelization capable in proof of time. All you could do was go back to the hardware. These are, I think, uh, 12 nanometer. So, you know, it's going to be like a seven nanometer at some point. But, you know, again, that's a big lift to get only 11% increase on the attack ratio against the 51% attack. And so by us just in the background, continuing to advance that technology, you know, ultimately we're hoping, and we've had some conversations this way to see some of the major chip manufacturers start doing this like Intel used to do some of their advanced pieces and, you know, have them have that battle about who can have the absolute fastest single core. There's, but there's no financial incentive for anyone else to effectively buy up a bunch of these and, you know, pull hash rate and attack the network in some That's way. That's right. Yeah, the only only way you can do this if you want to buy, try to buy 100 of them, and only about 200, 250 exist. Um, and then you still need 43% of space to even care. So, you know, it's a really, really high hurdle to ever even think that the ASIC time award is going to help you. And the neat thing about it is, uh, let's say uh, EMP destroys all of our ASIC time awards. There was a bug we didn't know about, the physical ones. Well, as long as somebody's still got a couple gaming PCs running, that one, you know, 24-hour period may take 48 hours, but then it'll work difficulty reset down to what everything was working like before. So as long as somebody's running a time lord anywhere, it just works. Um, Chia Dog, thank you for the super chat, uh, is asking, how long would it take to plot 30 exabytes? <sighs> plot times are down to like four minutes for people who really care. It'd probably take a couple months. I mean, this is one of those things that's hard to answer because it depends on how parallelizable you want to get. Somebody wants to buy like 50 machines and 50 GPUs and figure out how to have 50 buses to 50 different storage you know, arrays. You can go a little faster. But we're talking a while. Yeah, we've got a question about Chia and hardware wallets um, and any timeline for having it be supported on Ledger. Um, and yeah, okay, let's start there. I've got some following questions. Yeah, so uh, let me kind of answer a bunch of them. Maybe we'll see if we can get a few of them. So first of all, Tangem is already working. Uh, Tangem is a really interesting solution that is uh, 24 wordless and uh, device ID-less. So an interesting option. Uh, Ledger has now got our core BLS signatures and we expect to implement them behind our iOS signer. Um, we made some changes to allow the iOS secure enclave to be a signing agent in Chia because we think that, you know, Apple's security stance, the fact that there's a billion secure elements in iOS out there, uh, some of the concerns that people have with Ledger's recovery methods of late, uh, that Ledger's second ran to iOS to us. Now, we're also going to do Android too. So, you know, a good modern Android phone will be on that list, but we're doing iOS first. 
Um, but ultimately, yeah, we'll have ledger support probably summer. What are your thoughts on the Solana phone? Uh, well, Solano made a phone. We've decided to make all phones geophones. <laughs> I love it. A little more install base there. Just um, a little. Now, we've got uh, an, another question here and from uh, Mr. Masternode, uh, who's asking about the battle between Dr. Plotter and Mad Max, which I, I haven't heard of those two before, but uh, if you could share a bit more about that. Yep. So uh, Mad Max uh, is a guy who wrote a plotter way back, a very good plotter. Uh, and then there was another competitive plotter called Bladebit. Um, we hired the Bladebit guy, and we have been in touch with Mad Max for a while. Uh, then a group called No SSD kind of came out of the blue and had much better compression. Uh, Max figured it out, met, met them. We met them in open source, and then No SSD ratcheted up. And that's the way the state of play was until about two weeks ago. And then a quirky and interesting PhD fellow named Dr. Nick, and yes, the uh, Simpsons memes start there, uh, came up with an even more compressed method. It's basically like running GPUs in parallel and compressing down to like 25 gigabytes of plot file. Uh, you know, I know that Max is uh, going to be going deeper on compression, but, you know, look, we love this. You know, this is a big decentralized network. We're here to make it easy for people to do this. We'll continue to push our open source version forward too. But, you know, ultimately it's fun to watch people like make money grading really amazing software and solving really advanced math. Does some of this compression apply in kind of consumer worlds? Like, could it make WinZip better or not? No, so, so it's, it's, it's a compression. It's a misnomer to say it's compression. What it is, is instead of plotting the full 100 gigabits, you plot like 25 gigabits and then you have unique ways to come back when you ah, think okay. you have winning proof and do the rest in really quick. <laughs> okay, so it's not, yeah, it's, uh, as yeah. we were talking about before, it's like kind of wait till you win. Uh, we got another question here from Dracodus. Uh, thank you, very generous for the super chat. Uh, how about the Tank Talk phone? Do you see that overtaking the Solana phone? Do you have a perspective on it? Hasn't it already? Uh, so for people who don't know this inside joke, uh, there is a very fascinating NFT project that's on Pulse and Chia uh, that is basically peer-to-peer -peer audio, video, and texting between NFTs where the NFTs are the software themselves. Um, pretty fascinating concept and, you know, fun to watch people really go to a whole other place. You know, NFTs, singletons, you know, we use NFTs all over the place and people don't think they're NFTs because people have this idea that NFT is art. And NFTs are definitely art too. But, you know, the way our pooling protocol works, it uses an NFT to make it so that the pool can't cheat you and you can't cheat the pool. Um, you know, we're about to launch vaults, which is actually an NFT that is your wallet instead of your wallet being your wallet. So uh, explain that. So wouldn't it be cool if the way you recovered from losing your primary signing device was that you pulled the ledger out and it rekeyed in a new iPhone. But when it does that, it has like a two hour delay. And if you still have your iPhone and somebody grabbed your ledger, you could say no and take the ledger off and put a new ledger on. So vaults is this ability to use smart contracting in the chain to create really advanced custody. And so, in fact, like we think people are going to have an iPhone, a ledger, and an institution that are going to be their three signers. And so like their iPhone can do whatever it wants, whenever it wants. But it might also be rate limited. Hey, it can only spend 100 Chia per day. It could also be set that, hey, if I ever transfer an art NFT, it's got to have a one-hour theft clawback that the other devices can get. The other device can't spend anything. But it can rekey out your iPhone, again, with a delay, because that way, again, if somebody steals it, you can stop them. And the institution, well, what if you die? The institution can be proven that, you know, power of attorney, your estate has shown up, and the institution can spend your funds, but with a one-week delay. And again, if you have somebody who, like, 
deceives the institution to try to get your funds. You're going to see it pop up on the chain and you're going to go, nope, cancel. So all of a sudden, notice how there's no 24 words and there's no pounding on steel and, you know, <laughs> all of these very painful ways that custody works. That has to stop. You know, if this is going to be stuff that people yeah. use every day in their day job and you're just like, you know, the new accounting manager, it's got to be as easy as like the phone pops up and displays, hey, we're about to mint another 10,000 tons of carbon, Mr. Works at Vera. Uh, are you okay with that? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a challenge. I have, you know, I've got stuff on chain and my husband isn't into crypto. And I'm like, well, okay, if, if I die, sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you but, know? Yeah, but like leaving in your will, hey, contact this bank and, you know, here's the, here's the magic number that you need. Or if not, they can find it for you, you know, give them my name. Like, that's how it should work. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a lot easier. I'm not sure if this is also an inside joke. Do budgies secretly run the network? <laughs> it is an inside joke. We have a bunch of budgies in Discord. It's become a thing uh, from one of our NFT places, but yes. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the uh, customers who are adopting Chia. Because one thing, as I was looking, is that you have a different class of user than I think most blockchains have. I pretty much am sure that we're the only blockchain that has governments using us not for law enforcement purposes, maybe with the exception mm -hmm. of El Salvador. Um, so uh, the World Bank had a long-term project to basically bring some certainty to the voluntary carbon market under the Paris Agreement. And they had done a couple of private blockchain uh, experiments before we launched. And after we launched, they approached us and they put us in a you know, real vet against all of the other projects out there and chose us to run what's called the CAD Trust, um, the Climate Action Data Trust. So what this is, is that Vera, Gold Standard, Bhutan, Singapore, and others are going to have their voluntary carbon registries publish on chain in a federated database. So the way it works is like Vera has their rewrite view of Vera's carbon registries, you know, this, this project, this date, this, this geolocation. Um, and when they make an update, everybody sees there's been an update. They actually updated an NFT. Uh, and so Bhutan goes, ah, there's new updates from Vera. Let me download them. I can download them from Mexico. I can download them from Japan. And then I compare the hash of the download with what was updated on chain and go, yeah, okay. That's what Vera updated. I'm going to apply that to my read-only view of the Vera data set. And so now you have about 80% of all of the carbon that's registered annually being published in the CAD Trust. And that led with a partnership with the IFC. And the World Bank is the State Gov Department's bank that banks governments. And the IFC is the State Department's bank that banks private sector. <laughs> so the IFC uh, and us are actually minting real carbon offsets through the CAD trust and then selling them to buyers like Sumitomo Corporation and Melon, who are then retiring them on chain. And what's neat about that is you now have a complete audit trail. So you can, as the buyer and retirer, prove to the SEC or your customers or your auditor, here's proof of keys. Here's where it was retired on chain. You can chase that all the way back cryptographically to the CAD trust where you'll see the actual retirement in the block and the key ID. And then there in CAD trust, you now have cryptographically verifiable immutable proof of when it was created, links to all of the underlying supporting documentation. You now have this entire end-to-end -end immutable auditable path for the entire life cycle of a carbon offset. So now nothing can be scammed, chicanery, you name it, all you have to do is care whether the underlying carbon offset was a good one or not. So we've taken both, you know, what Edgar does for the securities market, 
what the regulators do for the securities market and the securities market and put it all on chain to be able to create a global 24-7 carbon market. And during this calendar year, we expect to start having quite a few projects tokenizing for retirement carbon on the blockchain using offer files and our decentralized capability so that you could buy and retire carbon anytime you felt like it. Is Chia uniquely suited to that? Would or would any other proof of stake chain effectively, uh, you know, as long as they had smart contracts, allow you to do something similar? Well, so a couple things. Um, proof of stake things generally don't have good decentralization, and when you're talking about a government, a government cares. You know, yeah. when, we, when we're talking to the governments, you know, we have hundreds to tens of thousands of farmers in everybody's place. Like we literally have one farmer on Antarctica. That's how globally decentralized this all is. Uh, they come off and on. They're off right now. Um, the other issue is true peer-to-peer -peer trading is actually quite hard. In Ethereum or any other EVM-style blockchain, it's peer to smart contract to peer. Yeah. And so at all times, you are worried that either the developer didn't correctly lock themselves out or the North Koreans yet haven't found how the developer didn't correctly lock themselves out. And, you know, that's just not acceptable if you're like the government of Bhutan. Like, you know, you just can't have that risk. And so the offer capability, the true peer-to-peer -peer nature is extremely powerful for them. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you're mentioning uh, governments, and I know some people in the audience might be thinking, that's not very cypherpunk. Uh, have we have we drifted from the purpose of crypto here? What's going on? So I always like to riff on somebody's uh, blog post I'm stealing, but the two revolutions, the American Revolution and the French Revolution, are really important ways to think about how do you make a revolution. You know, a lot of people seem to want the French Revolution to finance. They want to burn it all down, trust no one, you know, exclude the institutions. It didn't turn out real well for France. My view has always been that if you build the technology right and you make it so that you can fully support things like an anonymous digital cash, that you can do complete permissionlessness, that you can have assets that cannot be seized. And you also make it useful for your local community bank to make better infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Like the problem we have in blockchains today is that we're kind of a 20% technology. Like 20% of the world knows about it, loves it. Obviously higher in Asia, a little lower in the States, not much. To get to 80%, the only way we're going to get there is to have people who have real vested skin in the game to make hard decisions about which blockchain you want to run a bank service on. You know, right now, the reason that Ethereum hasn't had US commercial banks using it in production is because... No CIO at a bank wants to be the first one that walks into like Jamie Dimon and says, we lost a hundred million dollars to the North Koreans this morning. Like you just can't have that conversation. So, you know, it has been that it's not been a technology to platform that they could use and that's finally mm -hmm. changing. So, you know, when I talk about the government of Bhutan, I mean, the little government of Bhutan publishes stuff that the Chia blockchain every single day. You know, the, the, the World Bank is a customer, not the vice versa. And, you know, we can make it easy to have everybody adopt all this in the same way that Linux got adopted by like Goldman Sachs and it didn't stop it being Linux. You know, it, yeah. it, it's, it's to my mind more important that these technologies are globally available and work everywhere because partially already we're a bit of a political challenge for certain people in the White House because, well, if you try to shut all blockchains down, then you'd be undermining the world agreement of the Paris Agreement in Article 6.2 in the CAD Trust. So, you know, this stuff is a little more complicated when you live in the real world. Are there competitors to Chia that have the same level of guarantees that a nation state would, would need? So, I mean, 
partially Bitcoin, but the problem is Bitcoin doesn't have smart contracting capabilities. You know, Bitcoin could advance and be able to do things like the CAD trust. Um, you know, in fact, Bitcoin core folks are like, why don't we bring GLSP over? And we're very supportive of that. And it makes a lot of sense. Now, the interoperability between the chains would be over the top. But but after that, you know, you start talking about very fundamental problems on everybody else. Like account model is a real bad thing. You know, if you watch Vitalik right now, he's talking about putting a UTXO model in as a ghost so that he can actually start using UTXO to solve some of the problems that the account model intrinsically has. And, you know, that's a hard lift. I mean, it's amazing they made the merge lift, right? Going further and deeper, I don't know that that's going to give you the kind of technical track record that, again, like a major U.S. bank is going to be really comfortable with anytime soon. What are some of the issues with the account model? So inherently, like, I'll just use Board Apes. If you want to update Board Apes, you know, everybody's in contention to change that one smart contract because you have monolithic centralized smart contracts. In the coiner UTXO model, each individual NFT is its own coin. And so unless you can like defeat digital signatures, you can't steal all of the NFT of this NFT group, right? You've got to beat each and every one of them singly. It's, it's those kinds of things. And like, you know, account abstraction is an attempt to go in some of the sort of same places we're going with vaults, but account abstraction is not going to have like the ability to do clawbacks in the same way or rate limiting in the same way and give you the ability to easily as a normal human being, you know, use a web wallet tool or a desktop wallet tool to like add those things. And it's just a single spend. And then a minute later, your vault's up. Yeah. 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 We're getting a lot of questions about the Ethereum bridge. Um, what's the story with that? So uh, we were done, we thought, and the community was going to run it, had a couple of tweaks they wanted to make, and they've done them quickly. So I'd say it's in the, I'd almost call it days. It's probably a week or two before we'll have it seen on testnet. So. I get the sense that there's a lot of like inside jokes. Uh, Brian's asking, who's the fourth smartest person on the Chia Discord? Gooey cookies. How about that? <laughs> I love it. Now, let's talk a little bit about the, the token because we haven't talked about uh, the, the token behind it. Maybe if you could share a bit, like, what's the utility of the token? What's the value accrual behind the token? Um, I, I know, you know, price is not something to talk about, but I've had a few folks ask about, well, there was a precipitous drop. So maybe there's a story there that you're able to yeah, tell. Sure. So uh, the best way to think about XCH, Chia, uh, is that it's just like Bitcoin, except it's programmable. Um, and so it is the core security budget of the blockchain long-term. Um, we believe that there is intrinsic value to a well-built cryptocurrency, and it is the future ongoing demand for the security of a block. So as you see fee pressure rise, that is the at least minimum value, if you will, of a cryptocurrency. We actually have a model and a whole kind of walkthrough to talk about how to very classically model, be a market share of for like payments and, and escrow and all of that. You know, okay, in 10 years, if you have... 1% of the payments market, you know, what should XGH be worth? Um, we think that's an important and interesting exercise. It's hard to say, you know, it's exactly X because there's a lot of assumptions you have to make, but it's very easy. And in fact, we built a model to do this for you to go in and go, you know, oh, I think you're going to have 2% or I don't think you can get that much market share and just see what the output is. So you is know, that something you're able to share? Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I don't know how quickly I can find it while talking to you, but it's uh, on our blog. It's uh, part of our Cypherpunks and Sport Codes series. So... Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I guess... I, I bet folks... somebody in the comments will hopefully find it for you and pop it up. Yeah. Uh, comments section, keep going. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Gene. Uh, and so uh, so we designed 
Chia from a tokenomics perspective to have a pre-farm. Um, we were very explicit about this. Uh, we chose 21 million in homage to Bitcoin, and we chose to then get 21 million coins out as quickly as possible to the community. Uh, the way our having schedule works, we get to 20 million real quick, and it takes a long time to get to 21 million. So it's just a kind of quirk of that. Um, we also chose to have ongoing trailing emissions, but very small. Uh, and so we're going to do four halvings. Our first halving is in about two weeks. So it's a kind of a momentous moment uh, right now. So, you know, the other question you had, I think, was, you know, I, I'm, I answered most of your question, but not all of your questions. So, uh, yeah. So the one thing that came up was the dramatic oh, right. drop in the price. Um, yeah. So, uh, so Bram and I tried very hard to have a whole bunch of farmers with a whole bunch of XCH when trading open because we didn't want that to happen. Clearly, we failed to not get enough XCH out there. So there was a period for about uh, two months where farming rewards were being rewarded on the mainnet, but there was no transactions. Uh, but what's interesting is if you take a look at our price chart and you hit the market uh, total market cap button, you will see that other than a very bit spike at the very beginning, we have basically been a $300 million circulating supply market cap. And this is our most inflationary period. So, you know, on day zero, there were 21 million coins that have gone nowhere until last October. And then now there are 10 million new coins in the last 2.9 years. So we're excited about that. You know, we think as we start to become much less inflationary as a natural kind of job of getting those coins out, that we expect kind of different coin price activity. You know, and it's, it's a misnomer to say we don't care. I mean, we care long term about the price, but we don't care short term. I mean, you know, short term markets, you can never guess. Like if you go look, if everybody's ever interested, when Terra and Luna were falling apart, we spiked and were almost in the top five by like price movements because I think people were rotating to safety. And so the, the um, having that's coming up, you mentioned there was kind of an interesting scheme where the havings get kind of smaller and smaller. How does that how does that work? Well, so, you know, we kind of agree with Satoshi very much that you want to get coins out in a pretty fair way and you want to get a lot of them out. But ultimately, you know, you don't really want the reward to be the farming reward. You'd like the, the fees to dwarf the farming reward. Now, Bitcoin, unfortunately, makes the assumption that that has to happen. Um, we are more worried about the size of the Pacific Ocean. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if you turn your globe the certain direction, you'll find out that the Pacific Ocean is like an entirety of one side of the, the sphere. And so there's actually this natural lull in all commerce that starts around 4 p.m. Pacific and ends around 9 p.m. Pacific. And so what we'd be worried about is in a world where you don't have ongoing farming rewards, it would be interesting for farmers to basically revert blocks during that period to drive up block demand starting when Asian markets really start moving. And so we wanted farming rewards to be there so that even if the fee demand slackened during the 24-hour period, you'd still go ahead and make the block to get the farming reward. Okay, okay. And so it's a defense, security, you know, mitigation yeah, there. More security. You know, my, my view isn't 21 million and, oh, my God, that's the most important thing. My view is on any given day, you can be plus or minus 0.1% of knowing exactly how many exist. That, to me, is yeah. what actually matters. Are there other applications that are built upon Chia that you're particularly proud of or want to talk about? There's a lot. Um, you know, we're really excited about vaults. Uh, you know, making crypto custody be something that's as easy or easier than in securing your Gmail account. Uh, that's really critical because it's been a major blocker, I think, for people yeah. going out and doing this. And then it's clear to me that businesses haven't done a lot of really serious in-depth research because they need these custody control matrices that like nobody else has. And vaults is a major kind of component of that. Um, 
excited about CircuitDAO, which is DAI on Chia. Um, some ex-Chia folks and some long-term Chia community members are building a pretty cool tool there. Uh, you know, what we're doing with expiring offers and making global markets and offer files is extremely powerful. Again, something you've just not seen before. But data layer is the thing I think that's kind of an interesting uh, curveball. So uh, data layer is what powers the CAD trust when I was talking about a federated database. Uh, but Bram calls it a Merkle root oracle. Uh, and what's fascinating about it is, is that people are quickly seeing that it's a way to do decentralized CDN, but not actually store the file. However, make it very easy to mirror files all over the place. And so you could have things like Twitter, like the NFTs are hosted on data layers and not just on IPFS. And so there's some really interesting activity in the community, Michael Taylor being one of the major drivers there, uh, of turning you know that data layer primitive into something that's a really amazing application that create a true kind of Web3 experience. Uh, perhaps kind of related to that, MSpeed's asking about full stack applications built on Chia where everything is fully on chain. I think right now, even uh, you know on Ethereum, it's really smart contracts plus a Web2 front end. Yeah. So one of the things that's, that's important about Chia or Bitcoin is that the way you build a dApp is you build coins that know how to do the dApp and they themselves execute the logic when they need to. So like, I think this is an important kind of distinction between the account model and the account model. You're still kind of like compiling an EXE and running that EXE where in the coin model, you're building a small, extremely compact piece of assembly that anyone runs when they want to take their copy of it and do something with it. And so, it is, you know, it's not like you have to update the entire smart contract. If somebody wants to trade a really popular NFT for somebody for USDC, only two coins of, of the millions of coins on the network have to be touched, the buyers and the sellers. And so like what gets confirmed is much smaller. You know, it, it's somewhat of a different paradigm. But yes, mm -hmm. you can basically take and use a singleton or NFT to be the core uh, ongoing host of the global scoped variables in your application and then use that to build the rest of the application to hang off of it. So um, Tibet Swap is a really good example of this. This is an AMM on Chia and basically there are singletons for all of the liquidity pairs and anybody can spend them as long as you meet the rules. And so, you know, you grab a hold of one of those, you add your liquidity to it, you spin it the next block and now you're in and you've gotten the LP token back for it, right? So again, little different architecture. It takes a moment to get into the Bitcoin and Chia kind of way of doing things, but a lot more scalable and a lot more powerful because you don't have just this one mammoth monolithic smart contract. And in fact, a lot of what would be smart contract development on the chains is gluing together primitives on Chia where you don't have to write the smart contract. You know, you can build an application without writing a smart contract, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so the, I guess the Lego blocks are different types of things. Yes. Um, uh, now, is there a USDC um, on Chia? Uh, we're gonna bridge it over on that bridge we were just talking about. Okay, okay. Are there conversations happening with Circle to get native USDC? Jeremy Allaire and I worked at Partners in a previous life at my previous company. So yeah, we're, we're tight with them and we uh, help them on, on the Hill. They want to see uh, value locked. And so that's why the bridge is exciting. Uh, but we had USDS, but unfortunately, Stably had chosen a bad partner in Prime Trust. And so uh, we've mm. been without a good stable for a short period of time. Yeah, do you, I mean, do you think we're getting to the point where there will be partners that are more reliable? There was a period of time where, you know, everyone was going under who was centralized. 
I mean, I hate to say it, but Tether may be one of the most reliable stable coins we've got, um, you know, for really hilarious political okay. reasons. Right? Knocking on wood right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, what, one thing you know right now is that Tether is massively overcapitalized. I mean, you know, when you're when you're earning 4.5% on that much money, it's really hard not to have the money. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get uh, stable coin legislation in the United States to make circles actions very clearly legal because they're legal but they're kind of gray and that's caused them all sorts of problems and you know and then gets into interesting questions of like should fdic backstop the bank that they're otherwise at you know those those are the mm -hmm. kinds of questions that go but i mean our view is that we're going to make sure that people have a lot of options so you know uh as talking about circuit dow you know you've got over collateralized and so you know what's going on you know we expect to have usdc pyusd usdt all as options and again because of our ecosystem you can easily move between them you know it's very easy for somebody to make a market of you know here i'll trade you usdt for usdc and 99 cents on the dollar all day every day right yeah yeah um kind of coming back to the the plot filters we've got a question on requirements here around uh, cpu and gpu um and as the the new plot filters come out does it change and where are they right now so uh, the pop filter is this idea that instead of having to check every single plot you have, we're going to rule out 512 of them. And it makes it so that when I'm spinning disk, you don't have to do much effort to like continue to monitor the network because, you know, you can kind of quickly look. And if you do have something that looks good, now you do the effort to go find the proof. Uh, that means that it really amplifies what you can do on the other side when either you're trying to grind, like, you know, put CPU power in place of space or partially grind like some of these uh bit dropping schemes that we're currently talking about. Uh, and because of that, what we're going to start doing, and we uh, did a hard fork that community all kind of looked at and implemented about 18 months ago, and it becomes effective in about another two months. And instead of 512 being disqualified, 256 will be disqualified. So now mm -hmm. whatever compute you needed to be able to look up a winning proof of space will double. And so that means for large farmers, you know, if you went right up to the edge of what your compute can kind of handle in compression, you won't be able to respond in time. So you'll have to either drop your compression or drop the amount of plots you have. And that's going to keep happening about every three years. And that's mostly to keep somebody from like renting a whole bunch of GPUs and completely in a otherwise, you know, uneconomical attack, attacking for like an hour. And because of that plot filter, you can get some interesting leverage and that plot filter falling works great. The other big macro thing is that hard drives are kind of on their way out. Um, we're somewhere between four and seven years from data centers switching just totally to SSD. And when we do that, we can get rid of the plot filter completely, frankly, because SSD doesn't kind of care, you know, where you look on it. Yeah. Uh, Kevin's asking about verified credentials. So maybe what are verified credentials um, and are they on track? And what are some example use cases? Yep. So we shipped to like 0.9 verified credentials because it wasn't really offline signed and it wasn't fully uh, secured. But Chris Allen, uh, the DID Web3, uh, standards committee has come up with a very good way to do decentralized identity. And the, the idea here is, is that, you know, you're going to be able to generate your own keys and you're able to go over to a verifier and you'll be able to prove to the verifier something. I'm an American citizen. This is my driver's license. Uh, I'm an accredited investor. And that verifier will be able to sign your credential in a way that you goes back to you and you don't have to disclose to anyone else unless you want to. So, you know, if you want to do a legal ICO, you might be able to walk up and go, I'm an American citizen, but I'm accredited. Here's my proof. And I can interact with your equity coin and the coin can verify my credential back with the verifier and sell it to me automatically. So now all of a sudden, like you can do these high regulatory burden things, 
in a very automated way where like the ICO issuer doesn't even have to keep your personal information because all that's over at the verifier if anybody ever asks. So it's so, sort of a variation on, on zero knowledge where the, the knowledge isn't zero, it's just held with someone who can verify you. Right, and, and it, it has a couple other major things. So, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of government permitting. So even driver's license, uh, you know, we've talked to some states about like alcohol beverage permits where this would be a far superior way to do it. You know, you're basically putting this verifiable credential on somebody's iPhone, you know, there's ways to recover it. And your, your verification doesn't really require the chain. The chain is just a reference to make sure that the verifier checks out. And that goes even further to being things like single sign-on. You know, it's like if your company issues you a verifiable credential, that verifiable credential can easily be used to log you into email, you know, to log you into all the SaaS applications like Okta. So, you know, verifiable credentials go a long way to do a whole host of things. And it makes it so you can start doing things like doing legal securities offerings on chain in ways the SEC already accepts as being legitimate, but they're fully automated. Does it create another kind of centralized point of security uh, vulnerabilities? Not really. And that's what's interesting about the verifiers. You don't have to choose just one verifier. You know, as an, as an issuer, as an app runner, you can choose your verifiers. And I expect that there'll be mm -hmm. quite a few. I expect like your local bank will be a verifier as an option. It's more like the notary system right? Where, you know, there's no one notary. There is a little bit of rules for what the notary should do. But as long as you choose a notary, like even other nations understand that you chose a local notary, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess similar to the Oracle um, challenge, but uh, perhaps uh, with more different applications to it. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think a long time ago in a land far, far away, Mark Andreessen and I had an argument about whether uh, X509 or Web of Trust was the way to go. And fundamentally, what Chris Allen has done is taken Web of Trust from the PGP era and brought it forward. So that you say, look, create your trust mechanism. It might be hierarchical. It may be very well be that like BlackRock only lets you use Bank of New York to be your verifier. I could see that. But I want that to be BlackRock's choice and not the system's choice. Because I can completely see, you know, somebody like, a new startup in the Chia ecosystem being like, no, I'm gonna have these four different verifiers and I'm gonna have them around the world and I'm gonna accept any of them. And what's also kind of neat about how the verif the verifiable credential stuff works is you can change them. So in other words, you can say, oh, let me add one, you know, I'll take that one too. And you know, it's a really easy thing to do and have your asset be able to automatically catch that it's been updated and trade between. Gotcha. Um, Carl's asking a bit about on-chain gaming and then the IPO. I'm not sure exactly what that second part of the question is, but I'll, I'll answer what I think. Uh, so there already are some games on Chia. So there's tr uh, trading card games, uh, Farmersville, I believe it is. It's pretty cool stuff that kind of goes on the NHP market. But Bram is working on peer-to-peer uh, -peer gaming for money. So think Wordle, poker, and it's in a payment channel, which is what's really kind of powerful about it. So you know, you find a person you want to play with. You both stake in, so it takes like a minute to set the game up, but then you play in web two speeds until either somebody cheats or you're done and you guys just, you know, come back out of the game or you can leave it and come back to it later. But the whole point is it's a payment channel uh, and it gets us, you know, I don't know, half to 60% of the way to a full lightning implementation for Chia. But we also think it's, it's a really interesting application period because there's not really been this kind of peer to peer, no rake, no trust. The smart coins actually enforce the rules of the game. And so you literally have like a referee coin that is making sure that the plays are right. And then if it detects, you know, it won't allow a, a move that's not legit. And if you detect cheating, you can challenge, go back to chain. And a couple minutes later, you know, you've got the last state. Uh, so, you know, that hand didn't happen, for example. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting application from kind of a gambling perspective. Um, I guess anywhere where you don't have to have coins in custody from someone else, uh, I guess allows more interesting scenarios where that trust might be a barrier to That's creating right. that application. Yeah, I mean, you know, here the only thing you're trusting is that the other person isn't cheating in the meat space world, but you know, you kind of should assume that if you're going to play, yeah. you know, anonymous peer to peer, right? But you know, if you know it's your buddy, like this is a really cool way where you're not paying the casino, it works. You know, neither of you can cheat because it's a buddy that you're not exactly trusting of. You know, it's just a, yeah. it's a very very cool thing, and and we love it because it's um, there's real demand in the poker degen world for it. Uh, you know, it's a kind of cool capability and it'd be really hilarious if we basically could bootstrap lightning on the poker DJ network. <laughs> now, uh, I was, um, I had Greg from a cash network on the show um, a couple days ago and I noticed that uh, Chia was featured as one of their applications. Can you yeah. talk a bit about that and what your relationship is with Akash? Yeah. So we actually uh, make them a partner for uh, plotting. So, you know, if you've got a bunch of machines you're trying to grind plots, uh, if you have a decent enough internet connection, it's completely feasible to ask that network to go create plots for you. So all you have to do is give them their, your public key and then download them to your farm. So that was kind of an interesting kind of application of cash and made a lot of sense. Got it. Got it. Now, the crypto industry has gone, gone through a lot of changes in the last couple of years. I'd love your high level 50,000 foot perspective on you know what's happened, what, what's going on in the industry and where do you see the industry as a whole going over the next five years? Well, look, we've been way too much full of charlatans and scammers. Uh, there's no way out of that. You know, it's extremely expensive to those of us who aren't doing that crap. But it had to happen. I mean, it had to be cleared out. Um, you know, we think that the only way out fully is to get more worldwide name brand institutions using blockchains in production. And we think Chia is really the only blockchain that has governments and banks and enterprises using it in production for real money. We need to expand mm -hmm. that. Um, I think when we can start having a conversation with middle America about why blockchains work for for applications they understand, then I think we get past the uh, you know slime of Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, he was definitely a, a stain on the industry. Are there other folks that you you look and see? I mean, I know CZ's had a bit of a run-in now. Um, other folks in the industry that you would say, hey, just like let's be cautious of them. So you know, CZ's an interesting character for me, and the reason I say that is. When you look at what he got charged with, that means they didn't find anything, hmm. you know. And so, so how do I put this? I, do I think CZ is a hell of a hustler? Yeah, he's exactly <laughs> who I want to be our first and primary spokesperson. Not necessarily, but did he build something real and did he do it honestly? Yeah, actually, he did. He was no Sam Bankman-Fried, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but things like the Quan, I mean, you know, he's one of those kinds of guys who didn't know who George Soros is and hadn't really thought it through, and so it's like. Are you being intentionally dense or are you just pulling the scam? And I think we're seeing he was just pulling the scam. Why do you say that? Um... He depegged and he solved it by using good old fashioned market makers and not the actual technology. And that should be a warning sign. Because hmm. there, there's some folks in the Luna community who think, well, if if the timing was as, you know, they'd gone from the three pool to the four pool without the attack happening then, if they turned on the Bitcoin as, as collateral assets with the automatic redemption, everything would have been fine. Uh, do you think that's just a pie in the sky idea? It's a pie in the sky idea. Any blockchain that requires manual intervention isn't a blockchain. I was being nice about other blockchains earlier who go into their Discord and restart. Like, that that's not trustless. That's not immutable. And that's not going to be financial rails and infrastructure for anything but gambling money.
Do you see it as a as a path from centralization to decentralization, or do you think you really have to start, you know, almost fully decentralized, like Bitcoin had its its genesis? So I have not seen yet a project truly go from centralized to decentralized. I've seen people make a little progress. Mm -hmm. You know, we launched once transactions started. It was a decentralized network. We have no control. You know, and I, I people are like, oh, but Bram's influential. Yeah, sure, he's influential. But you know, if Bram and I were to try to change the farming rewards that we otherwise had set at outset, somebody would fork everything, take that out, and we'd have a new like primary download of the wallet and node and farmer software, right? It'd be that quick. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think you have to be decentralized. You have to have built these. You had a lot of people grabbing stuff off the shelf and trying to get rich quick you know, doing a little development here and there, but not necessarily. And, you know, like I have to admit that when Bram was talking about BitTorrent, I didn't think he could do it. And of course, BitTorrent proved that you could actually. And so unless you've kind of got that level of design and incentives and economics, you know, you're not going to be able to improve on Bitcoin very easily. And you can improve on Ethereum, but nobody's had the guts to because everybody wants to grab the developers cheap. And those are developers I don't necessarily want. I mean, if you can't figure out the security problems that you have there, you know, I, I'm not sure you should be trusting, be entrusted with other people's money. Yeah, and, and that's fair. A lot of chains point to Ethereum and the constant billion dollar hacks that seem, seem to happen. And um, yeah, it's not acceptable for a real financial system. That's right. Um, now, uh, there's this concept of Lindy. Do you believe Lindy is actually a thing? Uh, yeah, remind me exactly what this is. It's that the... Uh, is the longer you've been around, room. the more likely you are to stay around, basically. Yeah, you know, it's there, but like, was MySpace Lindy? Hmm. I mean, I know for a while, Yahoo and AltaVista were the absolute bee's knees. You know, last mover advantage really matters. When you have the ability to look at everything and go, okay, here's what's still broken. It's almost an unfair competitive advantage. Do you think Bitcoin continues to survive? I think Bitcoin will go on for a really long time. Um, you know, Bitcoin's under pressure by us and others. Um, we're far more cooperative about it. We'd like them to, like, if you're not going to do Chia Lisp, then at least do OpCTV and OpCat. Come on. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who do see it as gold. And as, you know, and as I said earlier in my joke, and I'll bring it back around, Bitcoin's money. Ethereum's programmable, and our goal is to be programmable money. And I, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take for Bitcoin to become real money. And, you know, there's a chance that the stupidity of some Bitcoiners may keep it from doing that. I mean, I have these conversations with Bitcoin maxis who clearly don't know how to code, who say things like, we don't need OpCTV. We only want to support money use cases. And I'm like, custody is a money use case, you idiot. And that's going to be a problem. Now, the one sacred cow that will never leave is proof of work. And I believe that that's going to keep Bitcoin from being the dominant layer one. I think it's going to be big. I do not think it's going to go away anytime soon. But I don't think it's where like NASDAQ and Nice migrate. Is there room for more than one proof of work blockchain? I think it's a very limited number of winner take most. Um, I do think there's going to be like, you know, if you're a gaming company, Solana is not a bad idea. Like the centralization yeah. doesn't hurt, you know, your gaming asset, whatever. But when you're playing, you know, money transfers between Germany and North Korea. It's mm -hmm. a little different ballgame. Yeah. And what's money doing going from Germany to North Korea in the first place? 
buying down a nuclear program. I mean, you know, the thing is, is like, you know, sooner or later you have to deal with people you don't like. That's kind of the thing about foreign policy. But my point too is, you know, like German trade, Germany trades with Iran. And, you know, there's a real reason that like some forces would like to stop those transactions, even though they're perfectly lawful. You know, I, I, I don't want to be Vitalik in that situation. I'll just say it that way, you know, and Bram and I wouldn't be because we can't do crap about it. And that's the way it should be. Yeah. It should be that you don't have to trust the developers. Like the, the thing you should trust is their code doesn't have unexpected bugs, but they've done a ton of audit on them. Do you have a perspective on the US dollar and its primacy as a world reserve currency? I, I am not one who thinks the US dollar will be toppled easily because I also don't see an obvious next best. Um, and I think weirdly, because we're going to have a long period of kind of massive growth in the adoption of blockchains, that the, the, the layer one currencies are going to be volatile until that growth slows considerably. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to leave people wanting to do unit of count in dollar, and but, but be easy to move back and forth between base currency. And the pressure that L1 and stablecoins put on database USD is high. Database USD misbehaves, people flee. Mm -hmm. They can either go to USDC, they could go to Bitcoin, they can go to Chia. You know, they have options in a way they've not had before. And it's very real time. I mean, it's part of the reason why I worry about fractionalized banking long term. You know, when you're in a world where you can move your entire wealth in under a minute, you're going to see a bank run far more often. Is there a solution to that? higher capitalization ratios. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like die, die works because it's 150% capitalized, right? Like you can't overpull. Yeah. Yeah. Gene, you've been tremendously generous with your time. I, I've just been fascinated through the whole conversation. You clearly have uh, so much wisdom and knowledge from all your decades uh, in the industry. Is there anything that we, we should talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about today that we, we need to address? So I think the one thing that I want to remind everybody about is that blockchains and smart contracting have the ability to bring the, the, the last mile of the rule of law to the rest of the world. You know, we in the West, you know, our, our payments go through. People don't generally welch on contracts because they know. But, you know, when you live south of the equator, that stuff is luxury. You know, you have no idea whether your bill of lading will really truly get paid. You know, how much will get skimmed off. And so, you know, we can't replace like legal contracts, but once you come to that legal contract, we can make it so that you don't have to trust the escrow agent, so that you do know that the funds are good, that they actually transferred. And I think that's what's really, really powerful. I mean, bringing the entire globe into one single market that is permissionless, that is 24-7, and that has real security because it doesn't trust people, it trusts math. I love it. I love it. To everyone who is following along, thank you for all the questions. Uh, I know there's a few folks that we weren't able to get to. Uh, thank you for being part of the channel, part of the community who cares about the stuff that both Gene and I uh, care about. Uh, if you enjoy content like this, please hit a like on the channel. Please subscribe. Uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to be uh, going live to members only to share my thoughts on this conversation. So if you'd like to join, hit the join button as well. Um, and I want to say hi to my mom who's watching along learning about crypto. Hi, mom. I love you. Hi, mom. <laughs> Gene, thank you very much um, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Vanessa, and thanks for the opportunity.